You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to another Land of Legacy Habitat Heroes podcast. I'm back this week. Adam Keith, Matt Dye is here as well, and uh, I guess I should go ahead before we really get started and say why I was not here last week. Um, I actually, my wife and I had our first child um, December 8th, and so I think you guys recorded the podcast right before, like the day before and then a few days after. Yeah, and uh, sure so, did. And uh, so that's where I was, um, beautiful little baby girl. Six pounds, eight ounces, Maya Claire. And uh, so that was, you know, just a casual Saturday for me. <laughs> Anything casual that yeah, came right. at 3.34 in the morning. 3.34 <laughs> in the morning. My life changed forever. So, But both mom and, and Maya are healthy. That's right. And uh, tiny on the, on the baby side. She is extremely tiny. Um, I guess now she's back up to weight, but she's... She is six pounds right at, and you look at her, and of course she's tiny, but she's still in preemie clothes. Mm-hmm. She can't even wear newborn clothes right now, so she's uh, she's tiny, tiny, tiny. But and, cute uh, as a button. Cute so. as a button. Mama's doing great. Oh, my gosh. So much more respect. Didn't realize exactly, you know, as a young and dumb guy, um, what all childbirth really looks like, but my tip my cap to all the mothers out there holy cow um that's why they have a, a thing called mother's day yeah i don't know why they even have father's day because we don't do anything do near like that um that was quite the quite the deal so everybody's good and uh i'm back this week to talk more habitat go that's figure right. that's right now now you bring a different um point of view though from a, a legacy side of things because absolutely now it, it means something different like we talk about legacy all the time and i guess kind of uh i don't want to say figuratively but now like it's for real for real for real it's uh everything you do is how's this going to impact my child well heck you were talking about your dad gave maya cows already yeah so uh, quick story for you um for the last two years, I've been really trying to think about and prepare for um, starting to own cows when I moved back to my hometown and I'm on the family farm and getting some cows. And um, so that's just been something I really wanted to work towards. And um, 
just a few days after the baby, after Maya was here, my dad and my mother come to visit me, and uh, dad's like, yeah, Maya. They actually came to visit Maya. Yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to. Did I say they came to visit me? <laughs> they didn't care about me anymore. <laughs> um, they came to visit yeah. my daughter, and, and uh, dad goes, yeah, did, did I not tell you that? Yeah, there was a, there was a calf born the day before and the day of her birthday, I believe. And so he's like, yeah, they're Maya's cows. I'm, I'm starting to build up her herd. Like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I've been on this earth for 30 years. Yeah. Not one I, cow have I I had a cow. Uh, I inherited a cow at one point named yeah. Shivers, and <laughs> now she's in the regular herd of dad's cows. So oh, really? I, it was kind of like a, yeah, it was one of those like uh, just, he gives the gift and then he takes it away. Yeah. And so. My dad's had cows forever. I've never gotten a cow. I've gotten some ground beef, but that's yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, so my now owns cows. I just need to have kids. Yeah, there you Is go. Is that the secret? I guess so, yeah. That's the secret. Have kids and you get cows. Whatever it takes. I guess, yeah. <laughs> However we can build the herd. Gonna, yeah, I was going to say, build two herds at once. Right? Yeah, that's right. So, oh, yeah, definitely has changed my life and my way of thinking uh, in a more um, serious in a serious note, I guess, because you think about long term. I, I heard a stat just uh, today. I was watching a video um, regarding one of our guests coming up probably next week, mm-hmm. I believe. or Yeah, it will be next week's um, podcast. He's talking about the northern bobwhite quail and how they expect the population to be cut in half in the next 10 years. So by 2029, it'll be cut in half, and they, they project that the five years after that, it'll be cut in half again. And, it's how rapidly declining and, and habitat I th- is. And I think about like what I started out hunting was quail. And so for Maya, of course, being a girl, but I, if she wants to, I'll expose her to the same things I got exposed to and, and uh, in the outdoor world. And so I think uh, it's like, wow, there's mm-hmm. – my grandkids may never get to experience quail if we don't do something now. So that's, that's the thing right there. Like it, it comes down to action. Um, and, and the guests we'll have on next week is taking tons of action. Yep. And that, that hopefully that's going to, he's going to lead a charge, honestly, for not only um, us, but, but you guys as well. We'll get there. But like you said, it, we got to take action now to be able to change things for the future and change those numbers, um, improving habitat. So, and, f- um, and frankly, hunting is great. But, and everybody says hunting is conservation. Yeah, sure, a lot of dollars from hunting go into it. But it really is going to take action of actually doing conservative-minded management practices. So helping, donating, whatever it is, going in and trying to improve habitat, not just buying a hunting license. That's not Whatever that's not means enough. necessary. That's honestly. not enough anymore. And there's, there's t- that, that may have worked in 1960, but now it we need action yep. um, there's a lot of problems happening and shoot monarch butterfly mig- migration numbers are way down this year um, and so there's a lot of threatening things and so uh, it's time to get serious about it and i i think if anybody's watched my life they would see that they can they can definitely see the transition from all about hunting to now it's all about land management and the hunting's just a side note it's a lot of fun it's, it's the cherry on top it really comes down to the overall, I'm making a difference for the for the better long term. Right, right. So anyway, before we get dive dive in, <laughs> I was able to say that last week and not um, 
get reprimanded. I was able. I think I said dive in like once though. Like only once. Only once. Only yeah. once. But I mean, before we get into the podcast, reminder of Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Be sure to be subscribing um, to the RSS feeds. Um, if you have any questions on podcast topics, uh, anything, whether you're interested in consulting, we are getting booked up quite a bit really through winter into spring. So um, if that's something you're interested in or have any questions, info at landlegacy.tv. Another reminder about the For Love of the Land podcast that was launched last week. Yep. Um, Very well received, so appreciate all that feedback. Um, That is a new podcast to the Habitat Heroes podcast and Hunting Strategy podcast that we're doing. So now... If, if an hour and a half wasn't long enough to listen to us jabber every single week, you've got two and a half hours now. And this podcast is wide open topics about land. Uh, it does not matter. It's not hunting related necessarily. Um, it's just strictly land. And we're interviewing people across the country, uh, subject matter experts, knowledgeable people, um, people who care about the land, who just want to share their story how they're connected to the land, and then we're interviewing land agents. So um, it's awesome podcast format. Uh, everyone's loving it so so far. So um, if you're subscribed to the RSS feeds, you will automatically get it. Uh, so let us know what you think of it. Share it with other people who love the land like we do. Uh, we would We would certainly appreciate that. That's right. Oh, and then www.landlegacyapparel.com. Check that out as well. We will have some new additions to that coming very quickly, um, possibly this coming week, but we will be able to announce that through social media. So um, be watching for some additions to the old apparel line. And also go to our YouTube channel. We are full of announcements this week. I like it. That's right. That means a lot's going on. Go to our YouTube channel and go ahead and hit subscribe. Check out our old videos. Um, we're getting ready to release more, and then in 2019, there's going to be several more. So um, no doubt, just go ahead and go hit subscribe and check it out because there's going to be a lot of stuff, a lot more information on what you hear us talk about on the podcast, actually showing visual representations of it in the videos on YouTube. So. Well, that's that's for sure, and I don't want to quite give it away yet, what no. 2019 is going to look like. However, you're going to want to be subscribed to the YouTube channel to um, benefit from all the information that's going to get shared in visual stuff. So be sure to do that in preparation for January 1. You ready to talk about this week? I I'm always ready to talk about this week's topic. Because it really comes down to... <clears throat> Don't get upset now. Wow. <laughs> it really comes it's down to... It's good to be back. I love yeah. Maya, but it's, it's good really to be good. back. <laughs> it's really uh, good. It's one of those things where really one of our biggest things as consultants is um, prioritizing projects and helping landowners understand which what time is uh, spent best doing, um, whether they need to end doing this management or this type of project and focus more on these type of projects. And, and this one really comes down to the question of what's the biggest priority and then correlate that with what is some of the biggest things we hear from landowners and listeners across the country on things they can do because of, uh, 
this is occurring. So that is, for example, um, what you can do because during the rut, the bucks leave. And then I don't find sheds on my farm at all, or I only find a few. I don't know where the big deer are going. And so um, a lot of people have that question. I had a bunch of big deer on camera, and then as soon as the rut hit, they vanished. Or, or I had a bunch of deer on camera and during September and through the rest of the, the summertime period, and then as soon as September hit, boom, they're they were- gone. Like not even any, not even any of them stayed around. Like I just lost everything. What do you do? And th- these these scenarios are super common. Uh, we hear we hear these all the times. Whether it is from people who are emailing in, uh, messaging in, or clients, that this is a common occurrence. So if you, if you're sitting there thinking, hey, you know, I, my property doesn't hunt good at this time of the year. Uh, there's a reason why the resources may not be in place on the property and therefore deer leaf, deer change. Um, and, and so the, this podcast, though, brings it all back home. And, and I mean that in two ways. Uh, Information-wise, we're going to complete a circle, hopefully, for, okay, why are deer leaving? And then what is it, though, that brings them back or, or keeps them on a property? Um, so physically and, and mentally, that, that's kind of a double-edged sword, bringing it back home. Yes. Um, uh, to me, it's one of the biggest problems people face. I have faced it. I know you probably yeah, faced it. Yeah. Um, I've said this a lot on the podcast. Is this 95 now? This is 94. Okay, 94. Podcast um, 94. Um, I've been running trail cameras now for 20 years. I believe it's 20, or close to 20 years. I guess it's 19 years because I bought the first one when I was 11. Um, and, of course, I wasn't running them near as in-depth. But for the last 10 years, I've been running multiple cameras, hardcore, lots of cameras. And uh, I have seen the transition on to where deer would come in, a few pictures, gone. If, and think about your property. Think about your trail cameras. Um, when you're running them through the fall, do you get a picture of a couple random big deer and then boom they're gone and then a couple weeks later you get another deer that passes through and you get a couple pictures and then he's gone and you're like man i just i feel like they just passing through passing through and they don't ever stay um how come and and then the deer i have from the summer i have all these bucks during the summer and then the fall hits and i lose them they just they filter away to where there's nothing there's a lot of problems that that can create that um, to where deer leave or deer just pass through. Um, but really, uh, there's a couple of key components in that that are, are, are going to fill that hole in that bucket, basically, that's leaking water. You're, you need to figure out a way to keep the deer on your place consistently. And we have the solution. And, and a lot of that comes down to, uh, I watched that on my place for years and years and years. And uh, that sounds like a long time. For years, I'll say. For just years. Because um, I'm not that old. Um, we did food plots. That was one of the first things we did. Naturally. Naturally. Oh, well, Everybody wants to have a great green field. And th- this is getting into the, the meat and potatoes of the discussion. So so prepare yourself because I, we we might step on some toes, honestly, through this podcast. It's But don't. Don't get feelings hurt and, and turn off the podcast because this this stuff is, I don't want to say like serious, but it's a, it's a thing that a lot of people struggle with though. And, and we're, we're trying to basically cut to the chase and, okay, how can as a land manager and hunter, can you be most efficient? And, and we're going to get there. So 
So hang on and, and listen. But right, one of the first things that you did is food plot. Focus on food plots. And and that's what a lot of us do. We watch a lot of hunting shows and it's big, beautiful green field and food, 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 food gets preached at us. And it's it's kind of comes to where it's so much that that's all we really focus on is I need food plots. I need to add more food. Um, you you see an open ground or a piece of open ground or flat ground, and you're like, I need more food. They're eating everything I have. I need more food. I need more food. And we talked about this in the podcast, too, is <clears throat> if there's ever any, like, odd area or portion of a farm or something that is open already, everyone just snaps. And, and first thought is food plot. Food plot. That, that's naturally what should be there, right? No, not necessarily. But no. that's that's the mindset, honestly. And, and I, I, I'm going to say marketers um, within uh, the outdoor industry have changed people's minds and, and influenced them so, I guess, well. And, and from their point of view, that every opening has to be a food plot. Wrong. It does not have to be a food plot. But In fact, a lot of times, oof. if you... If you designate open areas to food plots and you put them in every open area you have, you're in, you're most likely going to end up putting a food plot where you're going to always bump deer, and then it's more of a problem than a solution. Definitely. Um, so basically, the, the basic thing is everyone wants to focus on food. Yes. From from a hunting standpoint and a land managing standpoint, and and seriously, I don't take this the wrong way, but food is important. However, this podcast is is designed right now to showcase the importance of cover so my, my question is as a hunter why do we care so much about where deer feed at and, and we the reason i ask that and pose that question is because we know that deer are crepuscular they they move most during dawn hours and hours at dusk so when when light is fading when we have less of a chance to intercept deer why are we focusing our efforts to hunt over the destination. Yeah, a, a food source, right. A destination. When you think about it, just from a just sheer numbers game, and I understand, you know, deer move um, more during that time, time frame, so you can intercept them, this and that. But but think about this. Where do, during daylight hours, when we can hunt legally, where do most deer spend their time? Bedding. So if that's, our, if that's where the deer are, then why don't we hunt? I'm not saying hunt in the bedding. I'm just saying, why don't we spend more time focused on creating the bedding and hunting around it versus the food where they're only going to spend limited hours at during daylight? Picture this. I'll just try to keep a, kind of a metaphor, a scenario that will be easy to understand. If I live on the west side of town, that's where I'm. That's my home. That's where I'm sleeping. But I work on the very east side of town, three miles away, and I make long that travel. That's a long commute. Similar to whitetails, they sometimes have long commutes because they're going from a bedding area, a core bedding area, yep. to a big feeding area. If if somebody were to try and get a pattern on me into where you're most likely going to see me, where are you going to be? Well, the place I thing. spend most of my time, my bedroom, my house, or are you going to go to 
somewhere on the east side and just hope that I get there before dark or before work starts. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say this because I know you, that I would never try and pattern you because you're a squirrel and you're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can't I'd catch pick me. someone else. Can't I'd be like, you know what? Me. No. No. <laughs> Not him. That's Anyone. the buck I'm going to let go because <laughs> yeah. he's a squirrel. Yeah. 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 He's um, the one that shows up on the north, south, east, and west corner of the farm every 20 minutes. Like, I, what? Yeah. I, I'm forgetting you. I'm going to... Back to back to what you said though is like, no matter what, you're always coming back to mm-hmm. one general area, or your or excuse me, I'm gonna take that back. You're always going back to not necessarily one general area. You're always going back to one resource, and it could be in different locations across the farm. But what that resource is, is quality bedding cover, and and we're gonna get into the association of bedding cover and security because those two are so closely married together. And are going to complete this this circle, if you will, throughout the podcast. But that's where you're going to. Yeah, you're you, you're, you, you, you're going to a bed. Yes. And I don't. <laughs> now that everyone's talking about deer beds, this now I'm not. We're not talking about a specific deer bed. He's going back to bed in a in an area, a general area that has got quality cover and security in it. That's right. That provides consistency. And that's where a deer spends most of their time during daylight hours. Yet, as hunters, we spend the bulk of time working open areas, planting food resources, um, hunting those resources, knowing good and well that majority of the time deer are are in those areas very limited shooting hours. That's right. How many times have you sat on a food plot going, man, I hope they get here before dark? We had that question weekly. Yeah. We had that qu- that or not not that question. We had that conversation weekly. We had that conversation today yeah. of man, I'm going, he's in the area, I just hope he gets there before dark. Yeah. When then in the very next sentence, and good friend of ours, um, and, and he's working to improve it, but he said, Oh, they're betting on the neighbors. Why are they betting on the neighbors? We want them betting on you. Yep. What is it that you can do to fix that problem? And and this all comes down to our habitat is on average, if you're looking at it from a from a nationwide whitetail range, it sucks. <laughs> it, what, the, and, and and seriously, we had I think it was yeah it was we we talked about it the other day on the phone we were on a conference call with someone and um and it, it, the the conversation came up and it was like I love deer like I absolutely love them. But one aspect of them that I hate is the fact that it's, I hate to it's some a degree. hate, yeah, it's, to some degree, to some but degree. it's wonderful in another degree. Absolutely, um, it's saving us, honestly, and let's make a sense. It's saving us right now in our current um, habitat situation. But deer are so gum adaptable; they can live anywhere. They're not like the quail, who no. are, if you will, that that keystone, the true keystone species, who have such um, habitat parameters that they have to fall in to survive. Deer are incredible. They can they, live in a subdivision. They can live in a closed canopy forest. They a marsh. Live, yeah, a marsh, it, a mountain. It does not matter, truly. They are they're all over the place. And it's like... The beach. Yeah. If if a deer was like a quail, I can promise you right now, one, the numbers would not be... Anywhere. Near, not even close. Not even remotely close because the habitat sucks. They would be in very... Um, identifiable areas in conjunction with habitat, just like quail are. When you find quail habitat, you will find quail. If deer were more like that and you were in 
deer habitat, you would find deer. If you if they uh, if you weren't in good deer quality deer habitat, you wouldn't find deer. Yeah, one hundred percent. So adaptable. Quail hunters, quail enthusiasts do more for habitat than deer hunters or deer enthusiasts because they have to. They don't. They ain't got quail. They, they have to. If they don't do the work, they won't have the resource that they love so much. Yeah. But a deer hunter can show up to a property that's been neglected for years, and there's going to be deer on it, most likely. Yep. And and if if a deer hunter or a land manager that was a deer hunter mindset was as passionate or as um, stressed about it, I'm trying to think of the best word. Um, concerned? Ha- more concerned or as as concerned as a quail hunter, they would do more for their farm. And it oh, would come in more of a form of timber stand improvement, old field management, prescribed, uh, fire. prescribed fire. It wouldn't come in the form of a food plot. No. It wouldn't come in the form of a feeder or a pile of corn. It would come in the form of true habitat management. Yeah. So tip of the cap to the quail guys out there. Yeah. No bash on the deer hunters, but let's call a spade a spade. Quail hunters have to do more because their resources way more uh precious yeah it's delicate it's fragile if you will and and, but here's here's the kicker here's the the point that's trying to be made in that comparison is hey deer hunters even though deer are adaptable what they will even more so uh congregate around and and coordinate their movements around is quality habitat so if you're in an area of poor habitat we know Which how you to make it. Are. <laughs> yeah, we know how to make it quality habitat, and if you do that sort of thing, the deer will will associate themselves with that. It's like if if I was a person living in Detroit. No offense to people who live in Detroit or Chicago or, Chicago, or New York, yeah, Baltimore, whatever. If if I was living there, I wouldn't feel as safe as if I could live in, let's say, the suburbs of those places. So if I had the means, I had the ability to move out and find somewhere that had better resources, security, this and that, would I? Well, yeah, a deer's the same stinking way. They're they're going to find that place within their core area or their their home range that offers that. We we have we really have one one goal and that's to survive. And you put yourself in the situation where you can best survive. Well, yeah. survive, reproduce falls under survival. Um, you put yourself in the situation where you can survive. And so you're going to find the place where there's the most security, um, the most resources to where you can use the least amount of energy to, to flourish. And, and really, when you look at habitat um, across the country, it's fairly poor. It's pretty poor. It's awful in most places. Okay, or in yeah. a lot of places. Yeah. Um, but the saving grace to that is sometimes when it's so awful and you still have mediocre deer hunting or even good deer hunting and you do these management techniques, sometimes it makes it seem too daggum easy. Hubba hubba ding ding. It's good. It can be awesome. I mean, like, I, I don't want people to... I guess in sharing that deer are so adaptable, I want people to understand that really it's a luxury to be hunting such a critter that is so adaptable because don't take that for granted. And But realize at the same time, though, you make those changes, they will change their habits 
in correlation to what you're doing. Even though they're adaptable, truthfully, do what you need to do to the habitat to improve it. And you will see the changes that you're looking for from a hunting standpoint. So I guess back <laughs> back to like the whole like, okay, we're focusing on food and, and, and we know that limiting cover or limited, yeah, limited cover um, is what truly is lacking across the landscape. But from a hunting standpoint, we're, we're so focused on on hunting food resources. And again, deer are adaptable. They can find food in a lot of different places. And the biggest part of this is identifying what's lacking on your property. And oftentimes, quality cover is. Because that's be- right. Because the first thing that we do, right or wrong, it is the first thing a lot of people do, is supplement food. If Okay. If I was to ask you, Matt, and say, hey, what does what is a deer's diet? Go. You could probably list out, taking the time, you could probably list out a hundred things that yeah. they eat in a, in a month even. A, oh, a yeah. different species. They're going to be eating this type of browse. They're going to be eating this type of bud. They're going to be eating this type of plant. It, it would be like that scene. They're going to be eating this type of berry. It would be like the scene from Forrest uh, Gump. Forrest Gump. Yeah. Well, you can fry shrimp. <laughs> you can boil a shrimp. You can yeah. shrimp casserole. They're going to eat clover. They're going to eat <laughs> yeah. white oak acorns. They're going to eat white oak, oak browse. browse. They're going to eat dogwood browse. They're going to eat wheat. And it go on and on and on. But if then I was to ask you, what is a deer going to bed in? You could give me a relatively small window of what their goal is, what they're looking for. Oh, yeah. What the ideal bedding is during that type of year that time of year yep much smaller window yep and to me that's that that's when when we look at prioritizing um and and you look at the hunting strategy we know deer are going to bed at some point during the day they're going to go bed somewhere mm-hmm. but if i was to say a deer is going to go feed today where is it going to feed you have a pretty good idea sometimes but other times you don't have a clue what they're going to do or if they're even going to make it there during daylight. Or, or like like we're facing right now, yeah, a ton of red oak acorns. Yes. They're not going to a food plot despite the food plot is a – we have incredible stands. Um, it's just a matter of this is what deer do in our area. They go to red oak acorns if they're available. Yep. Like, so they're going to eventually get to the food plots. But right now they're foraging on red oak acorns, and there's tons of them, so – they're meandering around, but as a food plot congregates deer during again the the gray times of of a day, bedding congregates deer. Like we have to we have to associate bedding areas, bedding thickets, cover security with congregating deer. So if you can take that mindset of okay, that's why that's why you hunt over food plots. I mean because it's a resource and it congregates deer. Well. It, Cover is a resource and it congregates deer. That's right. So we have to think and adopt that. Okay, there's two things, cover and food. I could do both, but um, they do the same thing. So To me, I would, I'm would. i just trying to think of an analogy or uh, picture a map. Yeah. And each bedding area, wherever they're at, is a magnet. And you drop a whole bunch of little BBs. And at some point, they're all going to move around the map, but then they're going to go back to these bedding areas. They're going—that's what's pulling them. They're 
they're they're going to these bedding areas to bed. That's the security. And then they as they start to feed, they move away from those from those bedding areas. And so after they're away from the bedding areas, if you're in timber country, you have an idea that they're gonna be going to food plot, but there's a good chance they're still gonna eat acorns. Before we go on a quick break, I have two questions for people to think about. That was a great analogy. Because my mind went to a Hunt Terra Magna map and having these things and then these little BB uh, Just, BBs. They yeah. all go to these little magnets. Yeah. And then, again, where are they at during daylight hours? They're on those magnets. Yes. And you hunt them as they're leaving. Anyhow. And I, and I have one more. Bef- after break, remind me to go yeah. back to that because okay. there's a question people ask. Well, how do you know which magnet they're going to? How do you know which bedding area they're going to? We'll cover that. Yep. That's perfect. Okay. Number one, who is scared to hunt the timber? Like on on, the, on your property... Who is scared to step foot in their timber? Think about that. Rhetorical question. You can't answer that right now, or we can't hear you. But then our question is, should the timber be off limit? I say no. No, never. I never want to to think that. I can't go and enter that because the habitat's so poor in those areas that if I step in this block of timber, I'm going to spook or have a chance to spook all the deer because really they could be bedding anywhere in the timber. They could be bedding here. They could be bedding there. They could be bedding one day. And then the next day they've changed because the habitat's all the same through that block of timber. Yep. Again, these, these areas that we're talking about of, of quality cover are in places where you can enter your timber and hunt around these areas of cover and be successful and not be scared that every time you step foot in the timber, you are putting yourself at risk at alerting deer. We get asked this question all the time. How can I make my land more productive? When you look at the native landscape and you're looking at how we can make everything more productive, it oftentimes comes back to replicating nature. Pure Natives allows you to do that with their custom seed mixes, all the way to their buffer mixes, pollinator mixes, all things native seeds from grasses to forbs. How could you go wrong with a company whose motto is hashtag plant your legacy? Get started planning natives with pureairnative.com. And check it out because each podcast listener can get a 10% discount by mentioning the Land and Legacy podcast. Yeah, for, so for me, when you think about that timber and what you can do to, to bump deer, now my biggest question is make sure you're not accessing the timber through the heart of it or that there's always a, an access an access route that needs to be put in place oh, to where you can do that. Uh, to me, and and I will say this, um, because I've, I've, for some reason, people have asked me this several times in the last month of, you guys are consultants and you're trying to get paid to give this information. Why do you give this information away for free? Yeah. It's the same way as a carpenter can show you a hammer and he show you a screwdriver and show you a nail gun, show you all his tools, but it's how he uses them which is what allows him to be in business. Become We're a, the same way. I, I don't want to say this is like, I say this just as a term, not as a, like a pat on the back, but like for him to become a professional, like get paid for his services. Yeah. He knows how to apply those tools yes. to certain scenarios and create something. That's, that's right. That's going to work. So that's why we do this to hopefully tell you about it. You can try and learn it um, and probably can learn it. Um, but the services are always out there to where, we help people use these tools and, and place them across the property to where the hunting is improved and this habitat is improved for the native species. 
basically, I was on a property. You were you were with Maya. It's like right after she she was born. So earlier this week on a property, and it was a new property. But there's portions of the farm that, as as the client was thinking about hunting, um, some places never crossed their mind that that would be a place that I would want to hunt. Like it was it was a timber lot um, close to a neighboring house and. Uh, a small little sliver of a fescue field. It's like, well, I just, you know, it's kind of like a forgotten little woodlot. I'm like, hmm, I want to check it out. Like, why? Why is that forgotten? Well, you go in there. There's, there's nothing. There's, it doesn't offer anything um, to deer besides maybe they walk through it. Um, but because of that, why? why would we keep it that way? We don't want to keep it that way. We want it to be beneficial. We want it to actually be a part of the property more than just a, a woodlot on a, on an aerial map that you don't ever go into. Let's make it part of the property. Let's change the habitat. Let's create a bedding area. And as this property took shape throughout the day and, and laid together on a map, we kind of went back through like where we started and, and thought about, okay, remember what was here? Well, let's look at how it's going to change. And then all of a sudden, like that light bulb just boom, like we made a big circle around the property and did, and did this in several areas. And like now it, it's a cohesive property instead of seeing deer, like, Oh, I see them in that corner of the field, or I always see them down here or yeah, there's some there. It was, we just spent a day talking about the habitat and looking at the features of the property and this and that. And, and we're going to put when, when the, when the client, implements the plan he's going to have deer all across his property and utilizing portions of the property that never he's never seen deer work before and that's super encouraging that's what we're talking about is is not being afraid to see change on a property one but two is to know that change is necessary um on a property to to make it cohesive and make all these elements come together and you just have to know, like identify currently what's there and what it should be. That's right. So to me, when we're talking about, okay, sanctuaries, bedding areas, yeah. what, what do these come in? What are these? And in all the landscapes we have crop country, timber country, even small properties, what is it that we can do? Um, Tim, crop, I mean, crop country, um, immediately this, this is t- to me this is the one that irritates me the most and i and i just got shared i don't know if you saw that um while you're talking about that i'm gonna find the, the okay. article so i okay crop country immediately identify when, when we think of bedding in crop country um immediately it goes to portions of farms that are not tilled that are not crop and usually what they are are um Slopes, drainages, cedar thickets, or if you do have CRP ground, it is stands of, whether it's good, bad, good quality, does not matter, um, stands of CRP. Because, keyword because, bedding is, is either non-existent or um, there's just poor quality, so they have to be in these areas because if they weren't there, they'd be bedded down in cut soybean fields or or uh, chisel plowed fields right now through through much of you know the the core crop country um, throughout America. So if if 
you're in that crop country, basically you don't really have an option for deer. Oh, I saw that article. You don't have an option for deer besides these areas that are not farmed and left alone. So by them being left alone throughout most of the most of the year, yes, these areas are considered secure, but really they don't have an option because for I would say eight months out of well not quite eight. Seven months out of the year, that's the only option they have because crop fields aren't planted and they're not betting in them most of the time yep. anyhow. So they don't really have an option. They're in these places no matter really what the cover is. And, I mean, shoot, we've driven through and been on properties um, all across. I, I think of Illinois, honestly, is, is a key one um, where there is, if you will, vegetation that isn't harvested uh where there is any vegetation during the winter months that's where deer are yeah plain simple the marshy areas marshy uh wood wood lots whether they're quality or not wide open it does not matter you will find deer in them these drainage ditches um again cedar thickets it doesn't matter they just don't have anywhere else to go that's often what i think about when when crop country bedding i i have quotes up bedding is that's that's where they're at and, and we've covered this so much on the podcast, but this week is really devoted to the question of what happens to my deer. Where are they going? And if you haven't figured it out now, the answer to that problem is improve the cover, improve the security. Don't look at how can I get more food here because I want to feed the deer. You can have the best food plots in the world, but if you don't have the great, if you don't have great cover and the first couple of hunts you go out there, you bump the deer, you're pushing them off or you're turning them nocturnal. It's not that's not the solution to your problem in most cases. The solution is to improve the cover and strategically place that cover in areas to where you aren't going to bump them when you move across your property. So the article I was talking about when you were talking about crop country bedding and, yeah. and cedar trees, which is a juniper, um, this Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation Foundation shared a um a blog that had a, a link to an article where they found that a mature juniper tree can suck 40 gallons of water from soil in warm summer day um that's significant when you consider that particular area this particular area receives barely over a foot of water a a year mm-hmm. well, and it's very significant it has a huge impact on the environment the environment ecosystem in that area so right. to me if i'm a quote environmentalist and i'm looking for the best the best case, I'm trying to improve my environment where most benefits, uh, most species are benefited. You look at uh, a juniper, um, they do a lot that really takes away from the other native species. Um, in in uh, the form of hogging water. Hogging in the water. In form of shading out other species. Sunlight, hog, it's and a their bully. water hog. It's a yeah. bully species, really. Go. Get out of here, bully. Yeah. So back back to the cover. That That's where deer are during... In crop country, um, timber country, if you're in areas um, that do have poor habitat, honestly, you can't put your finger on it where deer are going to be. They're going to be on this slope or this ridge or this bench one day, and then the next, the other day. They're two they'll ridges be, over the yeah, next day. They'll and, be spread out all over the place. And, and that's the, the thing I brought up to you pre-show was uh, when we when we look at, let's simplify it. Keep it simple, stupid, Right. Um, we're going to color coordinate what we have. And if you picture um, green being food, so you have... Uh, you're you you're have, talking as if you're looking on a map right if now. If you're looking at a map and you say green is food 
and you have let's just say a, a lot of food so there is a little bit of food in the in the timber during the summer months uh, but if it's closed canopy, there's not a lot, which most places are closed canopy. You have a few open areas where you can say they're green because those are crop fields or they're food plots. Um, but then you look at it and you say, okay, September, drop of a hat, acorns start falling. Now the whole place becomes green because there's food everywhere in the form of, a, in the form of an acorn. How are you going to hunt that? Well, yeah. how, how do you make a pattern off of that? Here, here's... But uh, and before I before you jump in, I'm yep. gonna say okay. And then that same breath, you're trying to plant a food plot to hunt a deer that is naturally going to cruise through the entire woodlot, browsing and eating acorns because that's what they've done for as long as the white-tailed deer has been here. That that you're trying to pull pull them away from something that's naturally occurring, something that they instinctively do. And now we're trying to focus on. How do you how do you change that by planting more food, or why don't you just call it what it is and praise pl- praise the man upstairs for giving a, a resource in the form of acorn trees to where that puts fat on deer again puts the winter. fat deer puts fat on the deer and gets them through the winter and feeds the deer and many other species and you don't have to work as hard to make sure that your deer they're not cows you don't have to go and oh. It's the winter months. I'm gonna have to go roll out a bale of hay. If that was the case, we'd lose. We'd have lost deer a long, long time ago. Yeah. We're really just. They're doing. They're doing the way. They're doing things the way it was designed by following acorns, eating browse, and eating things that are native. Yeah. So why do we try to compete with that, and dump money by fertilizer, seed, lime, spend all this time trying to make something even better? when we could really just use it to our advantage, put the food plots in and use them for the early season. You can help supplement them during the fall or during the part of the season when the acorns are falling. But late season, that's the magical part of, of food plots. Yeah, uh, and, and here's the thing. Because I'm not downplaying food plots at all. No. I've been gone a week, so i got a lot to say. <laughs> They're a supplement. That, that's, that's what they are, and, and we, re- we realize that. But – what the the key component of that, if you I'm I'm just gonna call it a rant for 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 what it is. There you go. Um, the key component of that is that food resources change throughout a given season. We know that we've talked about it so many times here on the podcast and how to how to plant um, to basically complement those changes that are going to occur in a white-tailed deer's diet. But here's one thing that doesn't change. I don't care. At all, what time of the year you're talking about, a deer every single day makes a choice of where it's going to bed down. Yep. And it's going to bed down in an area that is secure and has the proper cover. If it has that opportunity, it will choose that every single day of the week. So, again, as it doesn't matter if you're hunting in September, if you're hunting in um, January, they're still going to pick the best opportunity, the best cover for them during that time of the year. So it may fluctuate a little bit throughout throughout a given season. I understand that with temperatures and uh, thermals and this and that. However, if you have distinct areas that are considered bedding areas on a property in comparison to unmanaged timber and zero areas that offer quality cover and quality security, you will have deer everywhere in comparison to concentrated areas. So we, we are always focused on food resources, hunting food resources, when 
we should be focused on what is more consistent, and that is bedding areas and protecting bedding areas and keeping them secure. Especially during the rut. That's oh. that's the key. When people, This is kind of addressing that, where do my deer go during the rut? During late season, um, you can have a lot of success hunting food sources, especially if it's really cold. But you can have the equal amount of success if you're hunting, if you know where the bedding area is. Um, and so many people don't, it, the big finger, that's that just kind of what we called it before. When somebody, you ask where the bedding area is and they kind of just wave this finger around and cover a 200 wow, acre span. general area. That, okay. Or a 30 acre span. Like, why can't we just say in that five acres? Somewhere in that five acres or less, that's where they're probably bedding on this portion of the farm. This portion of the farm, they're in that five acres. And and to where we really confine where we know the deer are staying. Well, that, that goes back to the question posed before the break is, are you scared to enter your timber? And, and what we're doing by creating bedding areas in timber portions of, of a property is simply going, okay, <clears throat> taking that 30-acre 30, 30 circumference around an area and concentrating it down to two and three acres. And then, cause, because that's what we're physically cutting, doing TSI, creating bedding areas, two or three acres. But then we have a buffer of about five acres around it that, hey, we just, you know, that's their space. That's their zone. That's the sanctuary. We don't go in there because we know that's where the deer are. So we went from 30 acres straight down to five, and we put those rough 30-acre places down to five in, in multiple places across the farm. Yes. And, and now, again, when deer go back or when those when those BBs fall on the magnet map, we know where, where they're going to 100% of the time. Yeah. There are going to be deer in that pocket. There's going to be deer in that pocket. And there's going to be deer in this pocket. Instead of spread throughout – Going to all these different food resources throughout a given season, every single day, a deer makes a choice of where it's going to bed down and where it feeds. But if you concentrate bedding, you know what's going to happen. Quick analogy. And the prairie hollow property isn't anywhere close to where we want it to be uh, or where we're working towards. But as a kid, as a teenager, when we were bow hunting the prairie hollow property and we would walk from the gravel road and we would walk all the way up to the ridge top, the crossroads. And then we would turn and take the trail towards four corners. We would always jump deer. Always. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot think of a time we didn't jump deer at some point on that trail. This year, Chad and I, the morning that I shot my buck, we didn't jump a deer walking to it. Got in the stand, and what's the difference? Now, that was one time, but I can think of a few other mornings where we hunted the prairie property, and I don't remember jumping deer going down that trail. And if we did, it was... I, I, I really can't remember it. Um, the difference, having designated bedding areas, designated f uh, food plots, feeding areas, to where there was more of a pattern to where we knew where deer were going to be. They weren't just hanging out, walking the gravel, or walking the logging roads. And exactly, and that's that's the other key of that is our, our path, our traveling, um, whether it is on a buggy or whether it is on foot, doesn't disturb those areas, food plots and bedding areas. So we're traversing the property without alerting deer that we're even there. And uh, your hunt was a perfect example. Um, you didn't bump any deer. Didn't bump any deer, got in the stand, and here they came. And here, yeah, here they came. Later on in the morning, the hippie buck showed up, and he was headed right for a veterinary thicket. Right yeah. there. So I, I don't know how, I guess, how much more we can stress the importance of cover and again not to say food plots are bad 
but we're, we're going back to, to the mindset of a consultant. How do we make this property and your time on the property spent managing it the most efficient? We just drove, I mean, uh, put the last nail in the coffin. There we go. Yeah. On, on why we do bedding areas. Why they're so important. Why they're so important. And why you should be focusing your time. Like there's a time to plant food plots in the spring and in late summer. But there's a time to build these bedding areas. It's the middle of the winter. Absolutely it is. And you can build them in the summer. You can build them in the spring. But ideally, middle of the winter is the great time to do it. It's a lot of work um, to just go and cut them with a chainsaw. It doesn't take a lot of time, but it's best to do when it's really cold so you're not Well, there's there's multiple reasons as like to crazy. why. One. Yeah. Yeah, you're not sweating like crazy. I'd much rather work in 30, 40 degree temperature than 100. Yeah. Two, you're creating more forage because most of these trees have buds on them. Boom, yep. right on the ground, immediate food. Three. You're creating cover, immediate cover during a very stressful time of the year. Okay, four. <laughs> I like that one thrown in there. Number four. Um, most days with sunlight reaching the forest floor. So as soon as yeah. spring green up hits, you can start growing vegetation. Five. And there you go. <laughs> I know. I like that one too. Five. I had to think of what it was. I lost for a second. Ah. Better shed hunting sites. Okay. The five. <laughs> Number six. six. Um, we could probably go on for the rest of the podcast. Number six is there's not leaves on the trees. So when you're cutting, they don't hang up nearly as bad. Yeah. Uh, in comparison to summer, everything wants to pull, drag, and, and whatnot. Number seven. Oh, here we go. You, seven. You cut them, and they're in the middle of a burn unit. You're going to speed up the process of, of spring green up even more because you can burn them as they're already cut. And yep. so you're removing the leaf vegetation. You're exposing that soil to sunlight, which is going to cause a massive explosion of green. When you have more sunlight on the, um, the forest floor, that's right, the first places to green up and create forage are these bedding areas. So, right. boom, you have forage, greener forage, quicker during the beginning of the spring to get bucks, hopefully, and, and does as they're beginning to prepare for um, giving birth. You're giving them forage sooner rather than later if you didn't cut. So, this is a perfect window to do that. There's seven great perfect reasons You want why. me to list off birds that like these bedding areas? No, oh, let's do it. Let's <laughs> I'll do just it. list a few. Um, woodland species where summer tanager is a, is a big one. Um, red-headed woodpecker is another big one. Um, there's there's a long list of more, but I'm not even going to go into that because I'll just nerd out on you. Here's turkeys. They love them for, for nesting areas as well. So they can create nests in these treetops. Um, and then all of the additional Forbes grasses and uh, early forests that come back into these bedding area thickets. The, the list goes on and on and on of all the reasons why. And I think... All the podcasts before have supported why to, to some extent. Um, but, but again, that long list is why we are such a proponent of it and a fan of these bedding area thickets is because the efficiency that they bring to the property for someone to increase their opportunities of, of hunting, um, their ability to hold deer and solve the problem of, oh, I don't have deer during the rut or I lose my deer uh, come September, or I don't ever find sheds, problem solved. That's or right. Pr problem, you're, you're then getting down to uh, helping solve that problem by implementing this technique. So small properties. A guy that's got small properties and you're looking to make the biggest bang for your buck, the biggest improvement to where you can hold deer on it, 
chances are you put in bedding thickets or you open it up and you get more early successional young forest, you're going to have better habitat than most of your neighbors. Um, and so now you have the bedding area that they want to come to, especially if you hunt it safely and you're not letting your scent drift over it all the time. That's that's where I want to start. So for me, Matt, and we haven't talked about this, if my grandpa owns 31 acres. Yep. And it's and a, half, house, a house and a half. And a house on the very edge. Oh, yeah. a house and a half, yeah. The, it looks like somebody built a house on half of the property. So it looks like the bedrooms are in on he, grandpa's he, and yeah. the living room's on, on the neighbor. He's got a six-bedroom house. Yeah, that's right. Pretty rare. So, uh, <laughs> But really, it's pretty much all closed canopy timber. Yep. If I was looking to make the biggest change to where it was an actual hunting destination, I would go in and make three or four big bedding thickets half acre and I would really just try to hunt it in mornings um, when deer are coming back up from the bottoms eating clover or acorns and and they're coming up to to those bedding areas that's that's what I would do I wouldn't be looking at trying to make a food plot no you'd have some erosion issues major (laughs) erosion issues well that's that's it goes back to the the identifying we always hear that term identifying the limited resource on property what is it what is it what is it oftentimes to to sum all this up it's it's not always food and yes food is certainly important and if it is a limiting resource then you need to address it of course you need to address we're not saying don't but again it goes back to efficiency Another limited resource, most likely, as we identified, typical bedding areas and stuff in crop country and timber country, um, small properties. Some small properties don't even have good bedding, um, so you need to create it. But oftentimes what it becomes is a limited resource on properties. Is they and, just don't have secure, good cover. But these bedding areas also provide food in the form of browse and early successional. So you're going to get great food during the spring, summer, um, fall, and then again in the winter. Uh, and that's why they're a great place to find sheds, especially in timber country, because you have this huge amount of of uh, browse in these areas, plus security and cover. So, um, kind of the best of. You know what I love? What I love bedding areas. I do too. <laughs> I do too. Um, how do you how do you uh, basically create these in these different types of landscapes in timber country? Chainsaw. We told you this. Um, just get out there, fire it up, start dropping some trees that aren't providing much um, income or in the future. So you're cutting out. Basically, if you have a, th- even if it's a whole half acre of white oak trees, not all those white oak trees are doing you any good. There's a portion Goes of them that can be thinned out. Last phenotype, week's podcast. Phenotype. Yeah, you want to thin them out. So the ones that are the healthiest are much healthier and are growing much faster. Um, and it's going to let that light come right to the floor's floor. Boom, there you go. Explosion of growth. You've got a bed and everything. That's right. And, uh, and I will say this, in, in timber country, what we are always recommending typically, because a lot of times we're trying to select areas that don't have great timber value, we want to open up the canopy between 70%, 80% of light whoop, right down hitting the forest floor. That's that's a lot of growth, and that will be a very concentrated area of forbs, grasses, brambles, um, Young forest, whatever it is, doesn't really matter what part of the country, you're going to have that regenerate to some degree. Absolutely. Um, if you're in crop country, planting something, likely, or improving the woodlots you have. Pure um, air it, natives. It could be 
and this is what you see a lot of in in crop country. I'll think northern Missouri, southern Iowa, parts of Nebraska, you see a lot of smooth brome, tall fescue, orchard grass, non-native cool season grasses that were once in pasture because that's kind of the way the farmers work. They they crop the flat ground and they Raised graze slope. the slopes. Well, then once they got rid of the cows, they just let it grow up. And so it may be going in and spraying out all this non-native um cool season grass and planting these warm season mixes uh, check out pure air natives because we have helped develop these mixes um, that are much more affordable than some of the other ones that aren't specifically designed for that application so um, and it's a once and done type planting or a one or two maybe even a three phase planting um, if you really want to increase the amount of uh, diversity there uh, i would strongly encourage you to check that out in our area even a mixed woodland habitat where my family farm there's a lot of open ground that we could turn that have been food plots and we're actually going to do this this year we're going to plant more of a native type food plot a mix of grasses and forbs to where there's a lot of browse there a lot of habitat for quail a lot of habitat for turkeys and deer um, but it's it's food and cover and that's how can you not be uh, excited about that kind of win? You're you're improving habitat Winning. for a lot of other species that aren't as um, adapted as as a white-tailed deer, and you're only helping the white-tailed deer even more. So to me, check them out and 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 consider planting um, natives native grasses and wildflowers because they're not only great for a lot of species and the soil and the water and erosion, but also the white-tailed deer. Hey, you know what? To go sum this up, I'm just gonna say, go create some good quality cover. That's right. And treat it securely, and watch your property change. Watch it develop into something incredible that you didn't think just just by creating or having bedding on your property, what it can do. Try it. Um, we need to get some clients on here who have had success. We through the month of November, we were getting text after text after text about hunts that they're experiencing over uh, bedding area thickets or harvest that that occurred, uh, just like our harvest, and it just was uh, rewarding one to hear about it, but two, it was further encouraging to just see and and watch these properties develop and the payoff come, knowing that how efficient this technique is, it will it will work for. It's worked for us. It's worked for them. It will work for you. So bedding area thickets, put on the front part of your brain as we're getting into wintertime. You want to talk about some plants and animals? Yep, absolutely. Plant and animal profile. Yes, sir. These are, uh, this is, as I said, one of my favorite parts of the podcast. I'm excited because I don't even know what you're bringing to it this week. When it comes to hunting and comfort, I can't think of a better way than hunting out of a redneck blind. You know, it's something about a man. You want to be this rough, tough, just adventurous, I'm going to hunt in any condition kind of guy. We've all been there. But it's super nice being tucked away in a redneck blind, whether it be hay bale blind, soft side blind, fiberglass blind, that allows you just to hunt longer in tough conditions. That's right. And sometimes when you have a limited time, you want to make sure that when you have the day to hunt, you can spend as many hours out there as possible. What better way than have a redneck blind keeps you out of the elements and comfortable. Plus, the another advantage of the fiberglass blind is put them in those situations where the wind might be too light and variable or mm-hmm. too swirly, and you can put a fiberglass blind in the Big Buck Palace, lock up all the windows, and sit in there and be scent-proof, scent-free, and, and still be in the game. Great time to take out a kid or a dad, older people, tuck them away in these things, get them out of those 
you know, tough conditions and enjoy a hunt for longer periods of time. That's Check right. Check them out at redneckblinds.com. All right. Let's hear it. What do you What do you got? I know you've got the animal this I week. I got an animal. I've got the king eider, which it, it's not a non-game species, but it's a incredible duck. Oh, and, this and, is that one up in Alaska? Well, it, it's it's definitely a tundra, but it will migrate along the Atlantic. Okay. Um, and and um, this is the one where our friend Ryan uh, Bassam hunted up in, uh, yes. in the Bering Sea. Yep. Yep. Um, Almost cost him his life. Yeah, I mean, th- this is that's that's the incredible thing about this duck, and, and why honestly bringing it up though is uh, because like when you look at the distribution of this animal, you're talking like Iceland, you're talking tundra, you're talking all the way up in Canada, and then it basically as it that's its breeding ground as as it migrates, we're talking coming down um, along each coast, Alaska, the Aleutian Islands. What's the furthest um, south it goes to? About the very tip of uh, Maryland at the Chesapeake Bay, and stays okay. on the coast. Doesn't come up the bay; just stays on the coast. Um, so, what about on the west coast? Alaska is it? Okay. So um, you've got you know Ooh. opportunities in Maine, <laughs> Massachusetts, Delaware, those areas to to harvest these incredible, incredible animals. And these are we're talking hardy ducks. Um, so they are absolutely beautiful animals. The males are black and white. Have this like. Um, grayish blue head oblong shaped head and oblong beak with an orange beak and an orange um, mass at the end of their their beaks so they're super super cool um one of the neat things about them is that they will actually like when they're feeding of course they're they're not a puddle duck they're a diver duck but they will go down to 28 feet underwater and feed um most of their diet is aquatic insects um, crustaceans. Um, they're looking at uh, mollusks and um, algae as well. So they will forage on a bunch of different stuff. They're nesting in the various tundra habitats, uh, low marshy areas, um, and along coastlines and shallow water. So just an incredible, incredible duck, uh, laying about two to seven eggs. I j- it just it's hard for me to wrap my head around. Uh, and my brother went up to Maine with with a good buddy. Um, and, and they were successful in a, in a king eider hunt, um, so you kind of checked that off the list. But I mean, they're in negative degree, you know, outside temperature with wind chills, and these ducks are sitting on water. Um, and of course, it is windy, so they're not—it's not frozen water along the coast, and you know, tide action. But I mean, they are surviving wintertime in in Maine on the water, cold, 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 cold. How do they do that? Um, it's just it's just pretty incredible just to know there's birds out there that have that lifestyle and that life cycle. They're not out. Not all birds, not all migratory birds are going to South America. So they're incredible ducks. Um, beautiful, beautiful birds. The males, anyhow, just like uh, most other waterfowl or, or bird species, there's sexual dimorphism in the birds. So most of the males have beautiful, vibrant colors in comparison to to females, but that's that's the animal. What you got this week for a plant? I'm going to share something real quick because yep. the guy asked us on our last live podcast, but Field Guide to Trees in North America, Nat- National Wildlife Federation, great book. Check it out. Every time I flip through it, I'm like, oh, I'm covering that one next week. I could honestly cover plants every single week if you wanted to handle animals because um, it's just so incredible. I, elderberry is one of them I want to cover in the future, but this week is witch hazel. 
Um, so it's a tall shrub, small tree, yellow, fragrant flowers. Um, I found this one, remembered this one a couple months ago when somebody, one of my friends asked me about planting a, uh, I think it was a cousin of mine actually, asked me about planting a tree that had mm-hmm. yellow color to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were asking about planting, they sent a picture of a tree and uh, in the suburbs that was yellow and it was a locust. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, no, please stop. Um, so I encouraged her to check out witch hazel. Um, witch hazel is a very interesting tree. It can grow 15 to 25 or 20 foot tall, um, about the same spread. But the thing about witch hazel is it provides a ton of um, benefits and it, some very strange benefits. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, it's used in medicinal purposes for Definitely. for humans a lot. Um, basically. Uh, they've used it for acne. They mm-hmm. they basically ferment it and get the alcohol content out of it. Yep. So uh, it's been used for hemorrhoids, for a hemorrhoid cream, um, acne, skin care. Um, let's see some of the other things That's that I really... Me. Let's get to back to talking about habitat. <laughs> That's right. Um, but birds obviously eat the fruits. Yeah. Um, it's highly browsed by deer and beaver, actually. I've, I've got a story on that. So keep... and, uh, and it's kind of that understory mid-story tree yep. to where um provides great forage but also great cover um they use the leaves for for tea some of the mm-hmm. first explorers um basically eye washes and shave lotions and uh, other soothing agents to help with insect bites and uh, burns and poison ivy rashes so it's got a, a wide variety of uses um but for us why would we encourage you to use it? Uh, it's native to the eastern United States, pretty much from Maine all the way down to Florida, if I remember right, um, and all the way out to Missouri. Um, it really has a lot of benefits for birds as well as deer. Um, so consider it, if, and especially consider it if you're looking to have a native landscape in your yard uh, or on the edge of your yard to where you're like, I want to have something that's native that's pretty, this is a great option. Yeah, and so... Quick story on that, like I was, well, it was when I was in college, yeah, went to um, Shandoah National Park along the Appalachians um, and, excuse me, Blue Ridge, and uh, they had some deer exclosures, and there's a, su- such a high deer population in the park, because it, you can't hunt the park, so they bring in sharpshooters mm-hmm. and this and that, and so they had these deer exclosures set up to monitor the what would be regeneration within the park. Um, and they were small areas, about the size of a room, so probably, you know, 12 by 12, something like that, and big big fences where they couldn't, um, deer couldn't get in there and browse. And one, that was just incredible to, to see um, the changes. And one's like, wow, if, if there was not so much browse pressure, look at the diversity in the plants that would be here. Um, but what was cool was the witch hazel that was growing inside ended up coming outside, like, through the cage itself, and then, like, there was a clear line. Like, it it didn't extend an inch past. Like, it was flush with the edge of the fence because they loved it. browse pressure. And then you look outside the fence, and, like, you'd see a stump, and, and there was dead sprouts from where they had browsed it. It was zero growth, but that's – okay, I understand that there's a really hungry deer inside the park, but is obviously an attractive food resource yeah. um, for, for deer. That's right. Hmm. Cool. Well, there, you cool plant. Yep. there you have it. There you have it. If you guys have any questions, be sure to email us at info at landlegacy.tv. 
message on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, be looking for the For Love of the Lamb podcast coming out third. Check out the blog, the recent blog. Yeah. Content provider Tyler Ross wrote it on the recent farm bill changes and new things coming. Um, if you're kind of interested in stuff like that, uh, which I think you all should be, check it out. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us this week. We'll catch you next time. See ya.